Well, hello again at Describe TV. And we know what you want to hear about, what you want to talk about. It has to do with the potential risks to finances, to your secure lifestyle, things like AI. And there may be some indications that parts of AI are being banned. And we'll take a look at that in this episode. Also, are there price crises with electric vehicles? Is there a crash in the crisis or in the prices of EVs? And why is that happening? What does it portend for the future of that type of vehicle? We're going to talk about the end of an era for a very unique loophole with vehicle titling. And this may seem like a small niche subject for a lot of you, but it's an interesting loophole that existed for almost 20 years where you could kind of get around some requirements for titling a vehicle that now has been shut down by one notorious state in the country. We're going to talk about business goals. Or on the one hand, there's an example of a $50 billion business. On the other hand, an example of how to create a business when you know nothing about business or about that business. But as usual, one of the most prominent subjects that people like to hear about has to do with housing and real estate. And in this case, it is very specifically about affordability. Look, there's a lot of opinions about how much you should spend for a house. And this is the title of the article that was in the Atlantic. It says even the experts don't know for sure. Well, that's because they're not really experts. How much you should spend really depends upon your scenario. But there is a lot of good rule of thumb to go by. First of all, it's a percentage of how much you have left over after your other expenses. So if you make 100000 a year, you might say, well, I should spend this much for a house. It also depends on other things. Do you have other obligations? Do you have child support, spousal maintenance from a prior marriage? That makes a difference. Do you live in a high tax state? That makes a difference. Do you have high car loans? Makes a difference. Are you in a geographical area which has a high cost of living? But one of the things that they get into in this article is that if you make 60000 a year and you have no existing debts, you could afford a mortgage of seventeen fifty a month if you want to be 35% of your income. And that rule, 28%, 35%, about a third of your income is a good one. That means you can currently buy a home for 250000 That sounds like a low amount, but maybe it's not that low amount. Part of the reason that real estate has ballooned to what it is there's a lot of people who are making, look, even if you double this to 120, that would double this to 500. Many of the houses that are purchased are for more than 500,000. A good rule of thumb is about a third of your income, back it into a mortgage payment, and that's what you have because the other two thirds have to go to other things. You have automobiles, utilities, repairs, food right? Fuel for your car, occasional eating out, vacations. You have to buy stuff. You have to buy new clothes every once in a while. You have to purchase things for the house once in a while. Consumables, right? So a, a third for housing is reasonable. And if you use that as a guideline, you can figure out the numbers real quick. You can use a mortgage calculator to say, well, if I make 90000 one third is 30000 that's X amount per month, back it into a mortgage payment based on the interest rate, and you know what to spend. The problem comes in when you try to fudge the numbers. 
when you look at, well, you know, I make this much, but I also have these expenses or I also have an extra car payment or an existing obligation somewhere, right? Or five kids that would have to feed a couple without kids that make 120,000 a year between the two of them can afford a lot more house than a family that makes $120,000 a year with five kids that live in a high cost of living area, maybe a big city versus the couple lives in the rural area, right? Because your cost of living is going to be low. So that's a big factor. At the same time, once again, here's a good guideline of retirement savings. How much do you have in your 401k? And typically, if you're in your 40s and earn 60000 a year, you should have about 180 already saved for retirement three times your pre-tax salary if you're in your 40s. If you're older than that, it should be a little more. So if you're in your 40s, take how much you make times three, that's how much you have for retirement. Now, that may seem like a lot or maybe it doesn't, but if you have that much saved in your retirement, 180,000, let's say, and then you go another how many years? When are you going to retire? 70? Maybe, right? You're going to be 70 retired. That's 30 more years. So how much more are you going to save? Maybe you save another 400,000. So now you have roughly 600,000, let's say, and you're retiring at 70. Is that going to be enough to last you the rest of your life? Well, if you make 60,000 a year and you have 600,000 saved up, that's 10 more years of money until you run out. So if you're, you're 70 when you retire, at 80, you run out of money and you might say, well, you know, I'm going to have interest and appreciation and the money's going to grow. Maybe it will, but you're also going to have inflation, which will eat up more of that money. And believe it or not, your costs will probably go up, not go down when you retire because you'll have more time to spend money. You'll also have some deferred expenses for maybe maintenance on your house and you're going to have health care that's going to go through the roof. So these numbers are bare minimum. And also nobody even has this much. So if you're in your 40s and earn 60,000, you should have 180. On average, this is what really people have, 105. So it's a third less. It's only 66% of what people say you should have. That's only making 60,000. And I think the average income is probably more than 60,000. So what does that tell you? That tells you that there may be a retirement crisis coming in 20, 30, 40 years. What do you think about all this? So... In addition to that kind of crisis, we also have another person coming out. Earlier today, we had a major bond trader that said people are going to run out of money at some point. And here we go. Another high-end financial expert, Wharton Professor, says people are going to run out of cash. That's the second time we've heard that in a week from financial experts that people run out of cash. What is going on with the same story come from multiple places? Is there going to be a major cash problem? So after the quick break, we're going to talk about EVs, artificial intelligence, automobile industry. We'll do a quick circle around some business income ideas. But the first thing we're going to do is talk about the two major subjects that will be more part of the world of daily lifestyle five years from now, electric vehicles and AI. Right now, they're probably 0% of your life that you think directly affects it. 
But in five years, they're both going to be major, major factors. Be back. Listen a minute. So, yes, we're back. So here's the deal. A lot of people that watch our channel are interested in being in business. Maybe you are in business. And this is one of the biggest fears that people have is, what if I don't know what I'm doing? Right? You have no idea what you're doing with business. You don't really have to know that much about your business. You have to know about math. You have to be able to do the math on a business. Expansion is a necessary step in growth for a business. If you're not expanding, you can't, there's no such thing as staying the same. Holding growth should be exciting. And the way you do it is you have to plan and you have to be strategic. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to go for it. As a good example, there was a restaurant which had opened up. See if we can find the article. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bore you with finding it. After two years of upgrading a facility, putting together a menu, designing the interior, doing all kinds of construction on the space, after two years of doing this, spending lots of money, they opened. Six months later, they closed. What does that tell you? There was not strategic decision making, right? They just over. They did a lot of decision making, but it wasn't strategic. They overthought it. And math is real simple with a business. If you figure out about how much you think you're going to make in that business and you do the math, I'm going to make X amount per, you're going to sell widgets. I'm going to sell 20 widgets a day times $20. That's 400 a day. And that's 2000 a week. That's 8,000 a month, right? And it's going to cost me 500 a month for rent this much for insurance, you do all your expenses and just do math. Math is easy. You can do it with a calculator. After you've done that, if it looks like it's profitable, then do two things. Take your projected sales and cut it in half. What you think you're going to sell, cut it in half. Then take your expenses that you think you're going to have and multiply it times one and a half. You don't have to double it, but if you think your expenses will be 10000 a month, make it 15000 a month. If you do that and the numbers still look like it's black ink, then go ahead with it. Because whatever you think you're going to sell, you're going to sell less. Or if you have a month which is maybe slow, or if you have a period of time where you have to take some expenses, then you're going to have to have cash. And that's going to come from sales. So you want to do strategic decision-making, find who your customers are. Don't guess. Don't think you know who your customers are. Know exactly who they are. And then set your pricing as a value add, making sure that it's a value proposition for your customers, that it's worth it. Every time you sell something to a customer, you're asking that person to take the money that's in their pocket, whatever they have, and decide, I would rather have what you're offering than my money. Think of you're selling something for $100. That person's holding a $100 bill. Would I rather have that $100 bill or what you have? And you have to make it a very good proposition. How big could it be if you grow a business? Well, take a look at Lithium Motors. Lithium Motors is a company that is in Oregon. And this is their current building. At that location used to be a little small mom and pop car dealership back in the 50s. And it was a family who had this dealership. Tragically, in I believe the early 60s, the father was killed in a car accident. One of the sons bought out the business from his mother 
and grew it into a business that now they're trying to get $50 billion in revenue. And they're close. They're buying up businesses left and right, buying up dealerships. They own a bunch of car dealerships around the country. And here's their revenues. Look, in 2018 was 11 billion. 2022 was 28, more than double. So you can actually do growth. Just like this article said, you have to grow. Growing is an important thing. You can't just stop and be stagnant. Expansion is a necessary step in growth. You have to expand. And that's what Lithium Motors is doing. And they're growing by adding to their portfolio, but also making their businesses bigger. So business can grow if you are strategic. And it could be big numbers, 50 billion. Now, you don't need to have a 50 billion. Think of what number you need to have. Does it have to be big? Maybe it has to pay your bills, but also put some money away. Because if you don't, you're going to only have 105,000 in your 401k and have a tough time retiring. So make sure that you're planning for the future. What are we going to talk about next? Let's talk about ransomware, cyber attacks. This is a big deal. This is something which is affecting businesses around the country and individuals and even what's called family offices. If you have a significant family holdings, you may be also subject to being attacked. Let's take a look at what we're talking about. So here we go. How much is ransomware costing? Well, guess what? It costs $449 million, half a billion, just from extortion, from ransomware. How does this work? These hackers, these companies, will break into your system. How do they do it? Well, see all these computers behind me? Every one of them is connected to the internet. In your company, every device on your desk, your mobile devices, your tablets, is connected to the internet. And... If a hacker finds one of those devices that doesn't have the right antivirus software, that doesn't have the right firewall, that doesn't have the right email protections, or if a person using that device clicks on the wrong link or they answer the wrong email, next thing you know, they're in. And once they're in, they can get to all the other computers in your network. And what they do is they lock them up. They shut them down so that you don't have access to anything. And when they do that, they know that your whole business is running on your computers. And if you don't have your computers, you're out of business. So what they do next is they send you a ransom demand. If you pay me for $100,000, $50,000, I'll unlock your system. And you have to pay the money. And that's where half a billion was paid last year. How can you prevent it? Well, you can do cyber insurance. You can do cyber defense. You can do IT protection. One of the most important things, if you do have cyber insurance, which the experts will tell you, is if you do have any kind of event that goes along with that, you have to do early communication. If you suspect you have any kind of hack or attack, you want to contact your insurance company very, very, very quickly. If you delay, they'll question it and you won't have as much response time. This is right from the insurance company. If the insurance hasn't worked with the insurer up front, new forensic accountant will have to start the process all over again, and they'll have to calculate the losses in a different way. So you want to contact early if you have a cyber insurance policy. Very, very important. Move on to the next subject that everybody loves to talk about, EVs. EV prices, especially on used EVs, are crashing. Maybe an opportunity if you want to buy a used EV, or it may be a sign that EVs are no good. Leave it up to you. 
So here we go. Used EV prices are crashing. Could not be plain enough. Why is that? Well, Tesla is the biggest reason. Tesla is cutting prices. They are buying market share. Tesla is buying market share. And the way they're doing it is they are cutting prices in order to get more share. Average one to five-year-old used EV prices by month, right? You can see in 2022, they were kind of gradually going up. Now they're going down in 23, less than they were in 2022. Part of it's because their car's a little bit older. Tesla price cuts is the biggest factor on new vehicles. And it's used vehicle prices are going down, which affects all the other used vehicles. So keep that in mind. If you're in the market for a used EV, expect to be able to get a deal. What else is going with the EVs? Well, Mercedes has a new EV that can go 620 miles on a charge. Even if you cut back on that estimate to account for the fact that it might be cold out or the fact that you might be using your AC or you might be towing something or there's a headwind, even if you cut it down to 500, even 450, that's more than the range on most gasoline vehicles. So you're going to see a lot more higher range vehicles coming into the marketplace. At the same time, BMW is trying to keep up with Tesla. They want to sell 50,000 EVs this year. That's triple what they sold in the first six months. So they have to up their game, right? Electric only counted for 10,000 units in the first half. Everybody wants to be in the e-game. So use it to your advantage. If you're a car buyer, you're looking to get a car, you want to know, you know what's in it for you because the factories are also facing the fact that the EV acceptance level is kind of in a funk. Early adopters had enough and supply is starting to outpace demand. There's a market problem. And the market problem is this. After the curve happens, it kind of trails off, right? The era of early adopters ending. And we're sort of a no man's land between enthusiasts snapping up vehicles and regular people who just want a better car, right? The first people who bought EVs were kind of like techie, nerdy, geeky type people that just wanted something that was interesting. And I get it. That's that's a valid point. You want to see how the new car is. But once that novelty is worn off, now what happens is regular people just want a good car. If the EV is not the best car to buy, what you end up with is a bunch of EVs piling up on lots. And that's what's happening now. Ford has 90 days, three months worth of Ford Mustang E's electric vehicles sitting on their lots. And that's because all the early adopters already kind of got out of their system that they want an EV. And now what's happening is normal people are saying, is this really a good car? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We're not making that judgment, but that's what the people are doing when they're making the decision about their next car. It's a very, very classic market scenario to have happen. So how do car titles relate to all this? Well, it's a sad day for people who bought old beat up cars because the loophole called the Vermont registration loophole is all done. The Vermont registration loophole existed for really to almost 20 years. How did this work? Well, if you bought a car on Craigslist, Facebook, Auto Trader, any of the places that sell used cars, many of them came without a title because the seller couldn't find it. They bought it from somebody else and flipped it some kind of, you know, backyard, backwoods deal, and they didn't have a title. So what do you do? 
what people would do is they would go through the state of Vermont. There was a loophole that meant that if you filed by mail to the state of Vermont, they would give you a registration. They wouldn't give you a title. They would give you a registration. But anybody could get one anywhere in the country. Didn't matter the vehicle. As long as you had a bill of sale showing you bought it, and anybody could just write one up, a bill of sale, you could take that bill of sale, mail it to Vermont. They would send you that registration. Now you have some proof of ownership, shows that you own it. Now you take that to your state and exchange it for a title. Boom, you're in. Well, for the last three or four years, our car title division, we've been recommending to people, don't do this, because a lot of states were starting to crack down the taking these there people would bring these Vermont registrations to Idaho and Idaho would be like, what are you doing? You can't do this. And it was harder and harder to do. And there's better ways to get a title anyway, but it's official. Now about a week ago, Vermont put out a bulletin on their website. They're not accepting any more registration applications from non-residents. You have to live in Vermont or you're done. Well, that changes things. Now you have to do something different, but the ways you get a title are still in play. You can do a bonded title, a court ordered title, all the other ways that you can get a title are still in existence and they're better. Even when Vermont was available, what you had to do is you had to pay a big sales tax bill on the car when you got your Vermont registration. They would charge you 6% of the book value. Didn't matter what you paid for it. So if you found some old beat up, I don't know, Chevy Camaro in a barn somewhere that you paid $500 for, $1,000 for, if they looked it up in the book and saw that the book value said 10,000 because a nice car is worth 10,000, they would charge you 6% times 10,000. That's $600 plus their registration fee about a hundred. You're paying $700 to get that registration. If you just went to your DMV and filed for a bonded title, you'd have to pay your DMV title fee. Most States are less, maybe 10, 20 bucks. You have to buy a, a surety bond, but a surety bond on 10,000 is about a hundred bucks and you're in. So you already saved money and you don't have to worry about going to Vermont, sending it back, back and forth. And it was a lot easier, but people wanted to do Vermont. So they finally shut it down. So one of the big misconceptions about a bonded title is that you have to pay 1.5 times the value of the car. If you read the laws about a bonded title in most states, it says you have to pay a bond of 1.5 the value of the car. So if the value of the car is, let's say 6,000, times 1.5, that's 9,000. People were thinking, I got to come out of pocket, pay 9,000. That's not how it works. You have to purchase a surety bond in the amount of 1.5. But surety bonds are cheap. As an example, if you buy a surety bond for 10,000 and less, it's 100 bucks. And it goes up about $10 per thousand. So if it was a $14,000 car, you might pay 140. If it's a $20,000 car, you might pay 200. It's cheap, cheaper than the tax to Vermont. And it's a better way to go. Another factor that people were running into with car titles is what's called a VIN verification or VIN inspection. People were trying to avoid having a VIN inspection done because you have to have a police officer come look at the VIN number, make sure it's legitimate and it matches your paperwork, check it on the computer, make sure it's not stolen. People want to avoid that. But here's the thing. We talked to a customer today who had a vehicle they purchased, never got a VIN inspection. They had it for 10 years. It was an old 60-something Mustang. And they went to go title it. And the title division said somebody else has a title with that same VIN number. They just got the title last year. They still have their car. So it's not like the car is missing. What probably happened was somebody took a vehicle, 
60 something Mustang that has three or four VIN numbers on it, different places on the firewall, the cowl, the door jam underneath. And they cut the car into parts and the VIN numbers went to different cars. So the fact that they did not get a VIN inspection means that they probably are not going to be able to get a title for that VIN number because somebody else beat them to it. They already have it. So car titles are important. Here's another example where people are getting really, really screwed over on car titles. This is a dealership in Atlanta that shut down and the buyers have no titles. There is no statewide system to help buyers who are stuck with cars they can't drive. They would buy a car from the dealership, get a 30-day temporary tag, and if the dealer did not file the title with the DMV, you're out of luck. This is the dealership's empty. Look at the picture, right? Why wouldn't the dealership give you a title? Well, what if they didn't pay for the car yet? What if they bought it at an auction and just bought it on, on credit? What if they bought it from a buyer that traded it in, that had a loan, and never paid off the loan? There's a lot of reasons why the dealer wouldn't have a title. And there may be hundreds of people who have no title that bought the car from the car spot. Looks like that's the name of it, allegedly. Always have to say that. And now they're out of luck. So that's why you have to look at some of these options that we have on car titles because you might have to do a bonded title. You might have to do a surety bond title. You might have to do a court order title because if you don't, you're never, never going to get a title for your vehicle and you can't drive it without that. So last subject is, drum roll please, AI. Is AI being banned? Is it being regulated? Are there more dangers with it than people know about? Well, it looks like there's some authority figures stepping in to AI to try to prevent it from overtaking or doing anything illegal. So what do we mean by that? Well, AI, basically what it does is it goes out to the internet and scrapes all of the websites to get information to have knowledge. It's kind of like you reading books to have knowledge. AI reads the internet. Part of the problem is AI tools are running out of text to train themselves on. AI, ChatGPT, and the other ones have already read the whole internet. They can't get any smarter. So they're running into roadblocks. In addition, there are lawsuits happening that says, are they harming people by filing, by publishing false information? And is it illegal for them to scrape this information? Look, most of the information that's on the internet is copyrighted. So if AI goes to websites and reads them to get information, to use for AI tools, then you're basically violating copyright, aren't you? Or aren't you? Well, there's some lawsuits already filed that say that AI can't use copyrighted information to learn from. Most websites have in their terms and conditions, you can't scrape our website for information. You have to read it as a human or you can't do automation. But a lot of AI tools are doing exactly that. In addition, there's also people that are experts in AI saying that there's a doomsday possibility. AI theorists is saying that I don't think we're ready. I think we're all going to die. That's a little bit dramatic, a little bit fatalistic, but that's what a person who's supposedly an expert says about AI. He's promoted his theory that hostile AI could spark a mass extinction event. A lot of AI industry says that's not true, but he's saying it is. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, I guess we're going to find out, right? These are draconian views, but 
they're not completely unfounded. I mean, we've all seen the movies. Movies are are fictional, obviously, but you know, AI already has attacked humans. They they used AI to do a war game simulation. They put in the rules that the AI cannot attack humans, but it found a loophole in the rules. Just like the Vermont loopholes for titles, AI found a loophole on how to still be able to attack humans, even when it had rules that said that it couldn't. Are you tired of automated systems and chatbots when you need assistance? Experience ActualHuman.com and connect with real professionals, not automation. At ActualHuman.com, we bring you a network of professionals who are excited to answer your questions and provide guidance. Getting started is easy. Let us show you how. Here's how it works. Step 1. Select the best date and time for your video call. Step 2. Describe your situation and the areas you're looking for advice. Step 3. Connect one-on-one with an expert and get the undivided attention that you deserve. It's 